This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories. Readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we Are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. Today we're listening to an episode from The Europeans, our flagship talk show podcast. Hello, Katie. You've had quite a week, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a bit of a dramatic week. My boyfriend was involved in a pretty bad bike accident last week, so he's in the hospital. And he's doing a lot better, but it's been very scary. And I've spent a lot of time this week actually being very grateful that we've had access to such incredible healthcare completely for free at the point of use. Like, I don't even want to think about how much this care would cost in a country without this kind of healthcare system. And uh, and all of this care has been provided by amazing doctors and nurses and helpers from all over Europe and indeed beyond, which has been really amazing. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to the staff of the Royal London Hospital in East London for their phenomenal work in looking after Annex. I also wanted to say, I've always been someone who is like very blasé about cycle helmets. I've never worn one. I don't know about you. I've always thought about myself as like a very confident cyclist, like a very safe cyclist, and I could never be bothered to carry a helmet around. And now that seems incredibly stupid. Like the helmet is an annoying thing until it becomes a potentially life-saving thing. Yeah. I'm sorry you've been through this. And I'm glad he's doing okay. But yeah, helmets. It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day after I heard the news. And I was on my bike, cycling around, thinking about helmets, being like, oh, everyone in London needs to wear a helmet. And like thinking of calling up my family and friends, being like, remember to wear a helmet. And then 20 minutes later, at the end of my ride, I was like, oh, I'm on my bike without a helmet. (laughs) Well, nobody in Amsterdam really wears a helmet, do they? Or do they? Literally nobody. And it's something I found really difficult when I moved here, because you look like... Well, or I felt like I'd look like a bit of an idiot if I wore a helmet here. And I guess it's because there are no hills and the bikes really rule the city here. So at least on the roads I'm driving on, it's very unlikely that I'd get into an accident with a car. But still, yeah, it's something I still feel quite conflicted about. I just decided, I mean, for me, it was also a thing about looking silly, partly, and also just being annoyed by carrying it around and it just being cumbersome. But uh, yeah, the upshot of this is I have just bought myself a lovely bright yellow helmet 
and please, cyclists in general, wear helmets. And that is the public safety announcement part of the podcast over. And we can move on and I can tell you what we're talking about this week. Last week, you might remember that Dominic spent quite a lot of the podcast raving about this incredible Romanian film, Collective, which was nominated for a couple of Oscars. And I'm also now telling pretty much everyone I meet to watch this film. It is so incredibly powerful and enraging and inspiring in equal measure. It follows a team of Romanian investigative journalists uncovering a huge healthcare scandal. So Dominic is going to be speaking to a member of that team, Razavan Lutzak, a little bit later in the show. Also, given that it's Europe Day this week, a day of celebration for all things European, we have a special little treat coming up to mark the occasion. Do not miss it. But first... Who's had a bad week? Well, it's been quite a bad week for the Italian public broadcaster, Rai, after they were accused of trying to censor the Italian rapper Fedez in the run-up to his big May the 1st televised concert. Now, they weren't accused of trying to censor his music or his rapping, but a speech which he wanted to give in the middle of his concert, speaking out against Italian right-wing politicians who have been slowing the progress of a new anti-discrimination law in Italy. So the idea is that this broadcaster didn't want this rapper to criticise specifically right-wing politicians on TV. Is that what's going on? Yeah, well, that's what Fedez has alleged. And it doesn't sound that great, does it? It doesn't. Fedez said that he had been asked by the broadcaster to submit his text in advance to them and that they then asked him to take out the names of individual politicians from his speech. He fought back and Rai did eventually allow him to perform and say what he wanted to say in the end, but he was still pretty disturbed by the request from Rai that he should water down his statement. He actually published a video on Twitter with clips of a rather animated telephone call he'd had in the run-up to the concert with an executive at Rai. And this is being seen by many in Italy as an attempt at censorship from Rai, presumably in order not to piss off Matteo Salvini, leader of the Lega Nord party, and other right-wing politicians. Rai have denied Fedez's allegations, saying neither Rai nor the management of Rai 3 have ever operated any form of preventative censorship against any artist of the concert. But you can indeed hear in the call a Rai executive trying to dissuade him from what the executive describes as inappropriate comments. The executive goes on to say, I am asking you to adapt to a system that you probably don't get. Not a great look, and perhaps the Rai executives should have expected Fedez to be recording and filming this call because he and his fashion blogger wife, Chiara Ferragni, are both pretty prolific in their posting of their lives on Instagram. And since this statement came out, Rai have decided to call the head of the channel to their supervisory committee for further explanation. That committee hasn't reported yet at the time of recording, but may have done so by the time this episode is in your ears. So keep an eye out for any further developments. I'll post updates on our Twitter account if you're interested, at Europeans Pod. And as I said, Fedez was able to make his speech freely in the end. And it did include him calling out specific members of the right-wing Lega party for making homophobic comments in the past. Some pretty awful things, in fact, like the quote from a regional Lega councillor who said, 
If I had a gay son, I would burn him in the oven. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty atrocious. So what exactly is this law that Fedders was trying to draw attention to? He was wanting to publicly support a bill drafted by a Democratic Party politician, in fact, called Alessandro Zan, who is himself gay. And it introduces measures to prevent and combat discrimination and violence for reasons based on sex, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity and disability. And according to Rights Group, this bill is very necessary. At the moment, many hate crime reports go unpunished in Italy each year because of insufficient current legislation. And a lot of LGBT people are pinning their hopes on this bill, making them more safe. So how likely is it that it's going to pass then? Well, the bill has already passed the lower house. That happened in November last year. And it was expected to move to the upper house. But then you might remember the government fell and dramatically changed a few months ago. Oh, yeah. And the Labour Party are now part of the majority, meaning the bill's progress has looked a little bit less certain. Its progress slowed specifically because the Upper House Justice Committee is presided over by a Lega senator who has up until now resisted bringing the bill forward for a debate. The argument being that it's not a priority right now in Italy when so much else is going on. A sentiment that I'm sure a lot of LGBT Italians would disagree strongly with. There are actually protests planned for this weekend to tell the right-wing politicians that time is up and this bill needs to become law. A protest plan for Milan this weekend had to be upgraded to a bigger location thanks to what is being described as the Fedez effect. Too many people wanting to attend. Mm. Okay, so the speech does seem to have had some effect then. What about Salvini and that lot? How have they responded to this criticism? Well, you know Salvini, he never misses an opportunity to do an attention-seeking social media post. And he jumped on this one to criticise Rai from the other side for using public taxpayer money to fund what he described as a left-wing political rally, the Fedez concert. Hmm. Fedez hit back by saying that he didn't take a fee for this concert and he paid his musicians himself. He also pointed out that Salvini's party has cost the country 49 million euros, which is a reference to a case in which the League were found to have fraudulently claimed 49 million euros in electoral expenses. But Salvini's criticism of Rai further worsened the situation for the public broadcaster. They come away from this saga with criticism on both the left and the right, pleasing pretty much nobody. And it's probably worth mentioning the context that public broadcasters in Italy have a long history of being used as a political football, with the top management positions being chosen by the politicians in power at the time, often appointing people who are members of their own party, which, funnily enough, sounds a bit similar to what the Conservative Party in the UK are trying to do to the BBC at the moment. Hmm. The Journalist Broadcast Union described it as a partyocracy this week, and the current president of Rai is in fact an ally of Matteo Salvini because he was appointed back when Salvini was in government in 2018. Aha! And he's actually quite a character. He's a, well, that's an interesting innuendo to use perhaps, but he's a Eurosceptic, supporter of conspiracy theories, and a fan of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> So this saga has not only increased pressure on Lega to allow this anti-discrimination bill to progress, but it has also increased the likelihood that current Italian PM, Mario Draghi, is going to try and reform the Italian media landscape. 
And in fact, I read an article from your colleagues, Katie, at AFP, who said that media watchers were expecting this shakeup to maybe occur in July. So this might lead to better times. But for now, bad week for Rye. But possible good week for Italy in terms of moving things along in the right direction. Maybe. Absolutely maybe. Absolutely maybe. I have to say it's quite nice to see a rapper. I know obviously not every rapper is homophobic, but it is this trope, right, of like rap music being sometimes homophobic. So it's quite nice to see Fedez going against that. Yeah, that's true. Although um, some people have pointed out that Fedez did actually make some homophobic comments in his early work. He's been on a journey. Yeah, to his credit, he apologised for that this week and said he sees it as a past sin and that he was really young and he's learnt since then. But yes, I agree with you. It is a nice reversal of that stereotype. Mm. Who has had a good week, Katie? It's been a good week for the children of Germany because of a super interesting court ruling. The top court in Germany, the Bundesverfassungsgericht. Are you impressed that I learned how to say that? Mm, very good. Danke. This court has ordered the government to improve a climate law that it passed a couple of years ago. And it has ordered the government to be a lot more specific in this law about how it's going to bring down Germany's carbon emissions in the long term. This law was passed in 2019, and it was basically the government saying, OK, we have signed the Paris Agreement, this massive international agreement where governments are agreeing to bring down their carbon emissions. How are we, Germany, going to do that? And so the law sets out this plan for how to bring down emissions over the next decade. It includes things like tens of billions of euros in funding for transitioning the economy. It includes taxes to make flying more expensive. All really good things. But the problem was that this plan got kind of vague once you got past the end of the decade. So even though Germany has committed to bringing down its carbon emissions to almost zero by 2050... The law said, yeah, you know, we've got a good plan up until 2030 to start bringing the emissions down. But in terms of what we're going to do after that, yeah, let's just worry about it in a few years time. Which, I don't know, like on first glance, that didn't seem necessarily that unreasonable to me. Like when you think about how technology might change over the next decade, we might be looking at a different situation in 10 years time. So why lay down super concrete plans? But the activists who brought this lawsuit, they made a pretty good argument. And that argument was that by committing to bring emissions down to nearly zero by 2050, but not really making a plan for how to do that beyond the next decade, you're putting the burden on younger generations to figure out how to fix the mess created by their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. It is a really powerful argument. It's a pretty good one, yeah. And the court agreed with them. It also recognised that Germany basically has a kind of carbon budget to spend under the promises that it's made, like a sort of maximum amount of emissions that it can pump out over the next few decades. And on the current trajectory, they could use up that entire allowance within the next decade, which would really leave the younger generations completely screwed. So who are the people that brought this case to court? So the case was brought by nine young climate activists. They're all aged between 15 and 24. So they are very much part of the generation that were going to have to work out a longer term climate plan for Germany. And they're all young people living on the front line of climate change in Germany. Four of them are siblings from a family that run a farm on an island in the North Sea, which is threatened by rising sea levels. And they were joined by some other young people who are also from farming families or families that have businesses in sustainable tourism. And they all said, you know, we are experiencing the climate crisis already. We're already having to deal with floods and heat waves, and this situation is only going to get worse. So the case was brought by young people, but they were supported in the case by environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and Fridays for Future. 
which is the Greta-inspired school strike movement. And I don't know, when I first read about this, I was kind of a bit cynical about it. Like, is this some kind of cynical ploy to wheel out these teenagers and make them the face of this lawsuit when actually it's these really big organised groups behind it? But then I thought, firstly, that isn't giving credit to the young people who brought the case, who have done all of this work. They're not just figureheads. And also, I kind of think it's a good thing that environmental groups are starting to get a bit more savvy about how to run these climate cases effectively and bring them in a way that's going to grab media attention by putting a human face on the crisis and putting young people at the centre of it. What do you think about it? Yeah, I agree with you. And actually, I finally got around to watching I Am Greta this week, you know, the the documentary about her. I am. And... That film really made some of my potential cynicism around the Fridays for Future movement really disappear because you realise, I mean, Greta herself, she is just a phenomenon. Like, it's not manufactured. It just happens that she is this incredible messenger for this cause. And I was quite moved to see her hanging out and being supported by these other young people all from across Europe. They were some of my favourite bits in the film. It's a lot of pressure on her shoulders, but seeing that she's inspired all these other young people and it seems pretty spontaneous and authentic. You're saying they're not just puppets and someone's not putting the strings? I don't think they are. She Greta writes her own speeches. Wow. There you go. Okay, but back to the case for a minute. What's happening now? How are the government responding to this court ruling? Yeah, so the government has said it's going to come up with new legislation to comply with the court ruling, probably this week, although at the time of recording that hasn't happened yet. But it is weirdly satisfying to see a government like doing the bidding of young people for a change. Like Often it doesn't feel like young people get much of a voice in politics, and politicians are always chasing after pensioners' votes. So this feels different. And a lot of climate campaigners are saying that it could really set a precedent for other court cases by saying that you cannot treat future generations as less important just because they're not here yet. This isn't, of course, the first time that climate activists have used the courts to force governments to act on climate change. Uh, there have been big cases in loads of countries already. Over there where you are in the Netherlands, Dominic, also in France where I live, Ireland, Norway. There's also a young group of Portuguese people who are taking a climate case to the European Court of Human Rights. So it's loads of different jurisdictions that we're talking about. But I still think it really matters that you've got the top court in the biggest country in Europe saying that young people who are going to have to deal with this in the years to come, they really matter. We talked a few weeks ago about how well the Green Party are doing in Germany. And actually, since we talked about it, they're doing even better. They're now ahead in the average of polls even. Do you think this court case is going to bring them even more success? Or is Germany having like a green moment? It does feel a little bit like that. I don't know. I think the climate case just adds to that agenda, really, and adds to the momentum. The two more traditional parties of government in Germany, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, they have been fleeing accusations this week over who is to blame for the existing climate plan not being good enough. And the Social Democrats are blaming the Christian Democrats, which is Merkel's Conservative Party, and saying that the vagueness of that original plan and all the foot dragging, that was their fault. So they are facing a bit of criticism. And in the meantime, the Greens can just sit there and be like, yeah, we told you this stuff is really important. So I don't know. I don't think that this one court ruling will necessarily make a bunch of people vote for the Greens who weren't planning on doing that already. But it definitely doesn't hurt. We have some more lovely people to thank for joining us on Patreon. They are Sofia Manzanaro, Jessica Dolan, Maria Seidler... 
Adam Novak and Sarah Hahn. Sorry if I mispronounced all of your names. <laughs> As we do every week. It's amazing that nobody immediately cancels their subscription. It is thanks to lovely people like you that we are able to make this weird little pan-European podcast every week. Uh, so if you too would like to help future-proof this podcast, we would love it if you could pledge just a couple of euros or dollars or pounds a month. You can find all the info at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. <laughs> As Katie said earlier, if you listened to last week's episode, you would have heard me waxing lyrical in isolation inspiration about a film that I had seen that week, Collective. It was nominated for two Oscars, directed by the Romanian director Alexandra Nano, and it's a piercing description of corruption and fraud in the Romanian public healthcare sector. And this week, I was pretty excited to get the opportunity to speak to one of the journalists featured in this extraordinary film. Katie was sadly unavailable due to the hospital-related events that she mentioned at the top of the show. I was really not in a place to uh, do a big interview about a healthcare scandal. So thank you very much for filling in for me, Dominic. And yet you did watch the film this week, didn't you? I watched the film just before we went into hospital and had to say it made things that little bit more stressful thinking about hospital infections. Fun times. What did you think of it? Oh, man, I mean, I don't think I've ever started crying at a film so quickly, like maybe in the first five minutes, which doesn't sound like a good thing, but it does give you an idea of how powerful a film it is. And also for me watching it as a journalist, you know, I was really proud to be able to say that I share a profession with Rezavan and his team. You know, for years it's become really common to trash journalism as a profession and just say that they're all vultures and the whole thing is pointless. So if there's anyone in your life who doubts that we need journalism in order to do democracy, I would say show them this film immediately. I don't think I've ever seen such a convincing case for why we need journalists to hold those in power to account. Absolutely. I totally agree. So Razvan is one of three journalists that the film follows um, who work at this Sports Gazette, which is a daily tabloid-type sports newspaper, which mainly covers sports issues, but also, as was featured in this film, has a crack team of investigative journalists. And during the film, you see the team working meticulously to uncover and understand these various layers of corruption and mismanagement and fraud. It's investigative work that started because of the aftermath of a horrific fire at the collective nightclub in Bucharest. Dozens of people tragically died in that fire itself, which has its own story of corruption and mismanagement. But dozens more continued dying while supposedly receiving treatment for their burns in hospital. Razvan and his team at the newspaper uncovered numerous shocking stories whilst investigating the care or lack thereof of these patients. And one of the things you should know is that Romania has the highest rate of hospital-acquired infections in Europe. And the state of many of the hospitals is really dire. This was all exacerbated by the fact that the newspaper uncovered that disinfectant products that hospitals bought were actually arriving diluted, often significantly to the point of rendering them pretty useless. And without giving too much away about the film, the journalist and the other person that the film really focuses on, who's a patient advocate who manages to become health minister, they reveal pretty astonishing levels of administrative failure and corruption. So the work of these journalists is, as Katie said, 
so important and it's ongoing actually and we'll get to that in my chat with Razvan but I decided to start the interview by asking him about something a bit more upbeat. What's it been like for you as a newspaper journalist to be featured in this documentary that's received such enormous critical praise, Oscar nominations and tons of viewers around the world? It was a bit of a shock because when they first came to our uh, newsroom, we believed that it was only a short documentary about uh, 10 or 15 minutes, you know, like we do the, our journalistic stuff when we take the camera <laughs> and we record the 10 or 15 minutes about the subject. When Alex, when he finished the movie, he told us, okay, so you should prepare your suit for Venice. And we started to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but also we were very impressed when we saw the final cut. Something I was struck by when watching the film was that clearly you and the team at the newspaper are this like crack team of investigative journalists and you uncover phenomenal things during the film. But the newspaper you work at doesn't exactly look like the Washington Post. It's a sports gazette, isn't it? It's a sports daily. And how is it that a sports paper happened to have such an amazing, effective team of investigative journalists looking into corruption? Yes, there is a big tradition at Gazeta Sportur. Gazeta Sportur is one of the oldest Romanian newspapers. So uh, we are 97 years old as a newspaper. And the investigative tradition is a big one because after a few years, after the fall of the communism in 1989, there was a team established here by uh, my colleagues, Catalin and also Mirela, who are working together for 25 years already or something like that. And they started with uh, some smaller investigations in the Romanian sport. But in 2006, I think, our journalists uncovered the story in which were involved uh, eight of the biggest football uh, bosses in Romania, and all of them were convicted in 2014, including the former Barcelona captain Popescu, who was a player agent. There was a money laundering behind the football players' transfers between Romanian clubs and foreign clubs, and these eight guys were involved. So, including this former football player, former captain of Barcelona, who's maybe one of the biggest teams in the world, they were involved and they were convicted after uh, republished by Gazeta Sportur. So, the investigative uh, tradition was big. Writing about this stuff takes you also outside the football because the links are in politics and, let's say, in medicine because they also wrote about anti-doping stories, you know, and that's why it was maybe easier for us to write also about things outside football and outside sport. So have you continued your investigative reporting into the corruption within the healthcare system? Yes, because in 2018, Gazeta Sportulor was bought by the Swiss group Ringier. And now we have two newspapers. So we write the sports stuff in Gazeta Sportulor and we write the investigative outside football and outside sport stuff in Libertata. Libertata being the first newspaper edited after the revolution. So it was the first let's say, free newspaper after the revolution. Its name translated as freedom. So Libertata means freedom. And we write the investigative stuff in Libertata and the sport stuff in Gazeta Sportul. It's a bit of 
transformation of this newspaper because now we are writing also investigative work in its pages. And so do you think anything has improved since the point at which the film stopped filming in the healthcare in Romania? <laughs> small steps, small steps. I'm not very optimistic because, okay, we are now verifying the disinfectants much better. So, <laughs> you know, in the film you can see that the company is looting its disinfectants. Okay, we are, the Romanian state is checking much better the disinfectants. That's okay. Also, the medics, they have improved salaries and also a lot of them are much open to speak to the press, okay? Because before 2015, we had only a few doctors who came to the press to speak also off the record. But now we saw this in the pandemic year because we had a lot of problems in the hospitals in this coronavirus period. So maybe these women like Amelia Royu and uh, Nicoleta Ciobanu, the women in the film, you know, our sources who are filmed in this documentary, maybe they were an example for the medical staff who talked to the press in the pandemic. The big problems are still there, so the infections are still in the hospitals, the hospitals are still old, we still don't have a big new hospital built in Romania after the revolution. The NGOs are building the hospitals in Romania, unfortunately not the state. And do you think this whole story and this saga has made Romanian people see journalists any differently? After the first stories, the people were very, very upset of what they read and they were very angry. I think that the movie had bigger impact outside Romania because the Romanians maybe already knew, let's say, the investigations and the topics, so a lot of them didn't watch the movie, I think. But the reactions outside Romania were very, very interesting also for us, and we read a lot. We were very happy that our work went also outside Romania. Another person who kind of is presented as an idol in the movie is this guy that becomes health minister, Vlad Voiculescu. We see that he's very well-meaning in the film and he's trying so hard and he's frustrated at various points with his efforts to improve the healthcare system. But I know it, the film has been a bit criticised within Romania for painting too positive a picture of him. And some people think that it's too political. What do you think of that? I think that um, not so positive about him because he's uh, doing a lot of mistakes. If you saw the movie, you see that he's a bit unprepared. He's uh, asking medic Camelia Royu what he should do. So I don't think that the part with Voiculescu is something like a painting of a rising star or something like that. No, I don't think so. You know, a lot of these people are also uh, involved in politics. The perpetrators of these stories about Voiculescu being uh, well-painted in this movie have also political backgrounds. I think that the film shows the reality. In our Romanian system, when somebody new comes to power, the ones behind him are trying to cut him off. <laughs> yeah, it did look like an incredibly difficult job he was trying to do there. The starting point of your investigative work that's featured in this film is this horrific fire at the Bucharest Club Collective, a tragic event that led to dozens of deaths and which yeah, was so horrific because of the lack of health and safety inspections and an absence of fire escapes in the building. That was back in 2015, so quite a lot of time has passed now. And is there any sign of justice for the victims yet? No, 
No, no, no, no. We are now in the appeal phase, okay? In the first phase, all of the guys involved were convicted. Nine years in the prison, ten years, twelve years. I think the maximum is twelve years for the woman who had the fireworks company, you know. I think this woman has been convicted for twelve uh, years, okay? But now, in the appeal, we have already two years in the appeal. And the judges are preparing smaller uh, convictions for, uh, let's say, the mayor of the fourth district of Bucharest, where this club was found, and also for the fire brigade who controlled the club. And we'll see in May if the judges uh, will uh, propose these smaller convictions for them. So, not much justice was made. In the case of the disinfectants, we still don't have, let's say, a solution, and so on. I think there are seven cases in the court after the investigation showing the film and none of them has a final decision. Some of them are still at the prosecutor's office because apart from this case where the mayor and the firework team and so on, the bosses of the collective club also, we have another case about the infections from the hospitals got by the victims, that case, is still at the prosecutor's office after five years in the half. That's why I say that I can't be optimistic <laughs> anymore. I can't be. Okay, I can uh, see this like an illusion, you know. Maybe it will be good. Maybe, maybe sometime it will be. It will be well, but no. If you haven't seen Collective, you should go out and watch it immediately. It can be rented online for about four euros. Uh, and if you're in the UK, it is currently available for free via the BBC iPlayer. Is it? It is, which I didn't realise until after I'd given Amazon four of my precious euros. God damn it. Hopefully Amazon only took a little bit of the money. I doubt it. I hope so. But anyway, that takes us seamlessly into Isolation Inspiration. This week we're doing something a bit different for Isolation Inspiration. It's the week of Europe Day, May the 9th. And to celebrate, we thought we'd provide you with some homemade Isolation Inspiration cooked up by our team of producers here with the help of some lovely children. But first we should probably explain what Europe Day is. Katie? (laughs) (laughs) This was actually one of the things I had to learn from my French nationality application. Europe Day is on May the 9th and it is supposed to be a day of celebration for all things European. Be honest, do you normally do anything to celebrate it or mark it in any way? No, which is pretty shameful considering we have a podcast about Europe. It's not really a thing yet. Maybe it's us that's going to start making it a thing. This is what kicks it off. This year, I am kind of tempted to at least have a go at engaging with it in some way. And uh, what I'm going to do, because I'm a very lazy European, is to go on the custom-built website built by our friends at the European Cultural Foundation, where they have gathered together a bunch of cool stuff related to Europeanness for this day. There's going to be a live stream. There's going to be videos of talks. There is an invitation to go on walks around your town or city and take photos of European things pretty cool yeah it is pretty cool and our little contribution to this cultural expression of europeanness is coming up now 
we decided to ask some children about Europe. And this is what they said. Do you know what Europe is? Yeah. What is it? I don't know. You mean the land of Europe? Uh, well, it's a land, eventually. For us, it means home. I barely remember any math from my last lesson, so I can't remember anything about <laughs> Europe or anything, so no. Oh yeah, everything is in Europe. Even England, even Europe. Oops. <laughs> Things I know about Europe. I know about Finland that Santa lived there, and I read in some sort of newspaper. Finland is the world master country of video gaming, and I think that's because it's cold and it's not so nice there. Where's your favourite place in Europe that you've ever been to? I would say Saluzzo, which is in Italy. It's our hometown. The ice cream there is healthy, so we can have it every day. I want some of this healthy ice cream. Where do you like to go to the beach? The Netherlands. The Netherlands? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I know that you speak lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of languages, dear. For instance, English, Romance, French. Seis. Seis. Siete. Seis. Six. Seis. Italian, German, Greek. Um, nueve. Ocho. Eight. Spanish, Portuguese, Swedish, Finnish, Belgish, if there's such a thing, and lots of others. Are there any things that you hope could be better in Europe in the future? Maybe some equal rights. Like rights, air pollution. Like I think one of the changes that should be in Europe is that anyone can marry anyone if it's a boy or a girl in every single country. And women's rights, women's rights. Yeah. That that's impossible. Is it impossible? Yeah, but mommy. Yeah. And mommy's so candy. And I speak two languages. I speak English and German. What do we have in common with other Europeans that live in different countries? What are the shared things that we have? Respectful diversity. Yeah. I'm still in elementary, so I don't know. Yeah, we've kind of studied it. Not much. <laughs> I didn't. Not yet. I'm from Augsburg, Bavaria, Germany. And for me, the European Union is like a group of friends. And do you think Europe is a nice place? Yeah. No. No. We're talking to Uncle Dominic. <laughs> so what would you like to say to Dominic? I don't know. And have you ever listened to our podcast then? Yes. Yes. Are there any things you think me and Katie should do better on the podcast? Maybe you could you could introduce some new topics like funny laws around Europe or something to do with humor. But do you know what Europe is? Huh? What's Europe?
Thank you so much to the amazing contributors that you just heard in that little European montage. Maya and Zoe in Ukraine, Ruben in Switzerland, Leo and Florence in France, Remy in the UK and Raoul in Germany. I've got a happy ending this week for a statue of the Roman Emperor Constantine I, or Constantine the Great, as some liked to call him. There's an enormous statue of him in Rome's Capitoline Museum, a colossus. The head is about as tall as a fully grown human. But the bronze statue is by no means a complete statue. There's quite a bit of it missing. One of the bits that has been missing is the index finger on the left hand. Now, we know that this finger has been missing for at least 500 years, thanks to a Portuguese engraving of the statue from the 1530s that shows the index finger already absent. Hmm. And the happy news from this past week is that the statue has finally been reunited with its lost index finger, which is quite amazing. No way! Where did they find his finger? They found it sitting in the Louvre in Paris, where for a while it had been wrongly catalogued as a toe. (laughs) Would have been a very long toe, no? Or maybe it's a very stubby finger. Yeah, well, it's all very confusing when everything's at like such a large scale, I think. Ah, true. But the reason why it's been reunited is thanks to the work of a doctoral student, Aurelia Azema, who back in 2018 came up with this theory that this finger was not a toe, but the finger of Emperor Constantine. What a thing to write your PhD about. It's fantastic. It's amazing, isn't it? She made a resin reconstruction of the finger to see if it fit the hand. It did. And that's why finally this week, the bronze finger and hand were carefully put together again and they fit like a glove. Not sure that metaphor really works. (laughs) Not quite. Oh, well. Next week, we're going to be talking about television, our favourite thing in the entire world. And we're going to be asking if TV is becoming... One of the things that holds us together as a continent. All will become clear next Thursday. In the meantime, when you're not watching TV this week, but you do feel like you need more screen time in your life, you can come and hang out with us on the social medias. We are on Twitter at EuropeansPod, on Facebook under the Europeans Podcast, and you can find a video of Dominic's lovely new clock on Instagram at Europeans Podcast. Oh, you've changed your tune. Do you think it's nicer than you thought last week? It's quite cool design, yeah. It's funky. Thank you to our wonderful producers, Kat Laszlo, Priyanka Shankar and Andre Popovicu. Our wonderful jingles are by Jim Barn and Mariska Martina. Go check them out on the interweb. You should also check out our friends in the Are We Europe podcasting family, where you can find lots of like-minded European-ish podcasts. The link is in the show notes. See you next week. A la prossima. Adiós. Did you like listening to this story? Dive into all our readouts from this issue or previous ones, or listen to our narrative Are We Europe stories wherever you get your earful of audio right now. And don't forget, you can also become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at €4 Euros a month. Just go to areweeurope.com member and help us build a new media for our changing continents.
That's reeurope.com slash member.